everybody, it's me, Josh, and for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen our episode on Operation Mincemeat from February 2016. It's a really great example of English drollness pulling through for the rest of the world, and it's featuring Ian Fleming, or Ian Fleming, depending on your preference, and Raul Dahl. It's just a bonkers history episode all around, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry Rowland. This is Stuff You Should Know. Chuck. Yo. I'm 39 years old, and I still can't say my own name correctly because of my stupid thick tongue. Ooh, you're going to be 40. Yeah, soon. Crazy. Yeah. You used to make fun of me, and now you're old. Well, you're still older than me. I know. Nothing I can do about that. That's cool, though. Yeah. You're aging very well. Yeah. No, you're aging really well. But you mean the uh, teeth falling out, the weight gain, and the, <laughs> and the gray beard? <laughs> <laughs> I still say you're aging very well. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, let's could see be your worse. hair. Take off your hat. I uh, still got good hair. Boom. It's, Look at that. I got hat head now. Beautiful. Okay. People yeah, started... think I'm bald. Some people do. Oh, really? Like, you're always wearing that hat. Why do you, why, I was like, I don't know. Suspicious people? Yeah. <laughs> like uh, the drummer for the Chili Peppers. Anthony Kiedis? Mm. Flea? Nope. Uh, the guy from Jane's Addiction? Nope. I don't know them. Not John Frusciante. Chad Smith, the guy that looks like Will Ferrell. Well, I he's thought that was got, Will Ferrell. He's always got that hat on backwards. And, um, and he's bald? Oh, yeah, totally. Brett, like Brett um, Michaels bald? Remember, he always wears a do-rag because yeah. he's super bald. So I get why people are suspicious. If you're a public figure that has a patented hat piece, then it's probably because you're bald. But not in my case. What a weird way to start the show. Especially this show. Mm -hmm. Operation Mincemeat. Yep. Which is a ghoulish, gallows humor, awesomely World War II British name for this this operation. Yeah, this will live alongside our uh, our Nazi spies and invading Florida yeah. podcast. And the History Girls covered this this um, very topic as well. Yeah, man. I, there's nothing I love more than little known history. This is this is it. But this is great little known history. Huh? Yeah, and this shouldn't be middle known because it it was a, after the Trojan War, maybe the largest and most successful military deception plan in history. Well, there was also. Have you seen that documentary, Ghost Army? About Operation Fortitude? No. They used a bunch of blow-up tanks and planes, like inflatable tanks and planes, to make it look like there was a whole Allied division over here yeah. so that we could invade Normandy more easily. That, it's like a, a Looney Tunes cartoon. Awesome. But yes, this ranks up there, with literally with the Trojan horse. This is the, it's that ingenious and that wonderful. Yeah. But so let's set the stage, right? Okay. So in early 1943... Um, the war was very much undecided. Yeah. Uh, it, it could have been anybody's. Like, Europe, um, Europe was under the control of Hitler. Yeah. L- huge amounts of, of Europe. It, they called it Fortress Europe because he, the Nazis were just, had just overrun the place, yeah, right? Yeah, they were dug in. And um, the, the Allies knew that they needed to get into Europe to topple Hitler or else, like, they weren't going to win the war. Sure. So... Um, Churchill suggested attacking Europe's underbelly, which is maybe Italy, Greece, 
undercarriage? Sardinia. He called it the underbelly. Not very flattering, but he called it Europe's underbelly. So everybody, the Allies, the Greeks, the Nazis, the Japanese, um, the people uh, in Hawaii, everybody knew. Yeah, they weren't American quite yet. Okay. (laughs) Everybody knew that the Allies were going to attack somewhere in that area. Yeah, come up through the Mediterranean even Hitler feared this the most, right? Which but, was key, right? And and I mean, everybody knew the Allies were coming and they were going to come there. But this this land mass, this area of land and sea, is large enough that you can't just be like, "Oh, they're coming down there. We got it covered." Yeah, we'll cover it all. You need to know kind of specifically where they were covering, and there were just a few places where they could have come. One was Greece. That was where Hitler always suspected. Yeah. One was Sardinia, right? Yeah. And then another was Sicily. Yeah. And in 1943, I think January, the Allied powers met in French Morocco and held um, a uh, conference, the Casablanca Conference. Very sexy name. Yeah, it really was. And um, they said, okay, we're going to invade Sicily this July. We're going to call it Operation Husky. Now we have to do everything we can to not let the Nazis know that that's where we're going. And that actually hatched. Eventually, what's called Operation Mincemeat. Yeah, you know what? Uh, studying this stuff, and I'm not a big war buff, um, although I'm getting more so. But reading up on this stuff, like the old wars, are so much like the board game Risk. Yeah, that it's startling. Yeah, it's it literally when you look at this stuff, it's like moving troops to where you think people are going to attack you. Right. And rolling the dice a bit, and if you're right, then great. If not, you're screwed. Very much so, which is why it's such a huge shift that we're seeing now yeah. in the, in, un, in moving to unconventional warfare. Yeah, man, that's scary stuff. Yeah. I think pretty much all war is scary. Yeah, well, of course. I'm not saying like Normandy was a cakewalk or anything because they knew what they, <laughs> was going on. Right. Man, I watched Saving Private Ryan again the other day. God, it's crazy. That thing's almost a snuff film. It's yeah. not as bad as We Were Soldiers, which is a snuff film, but it's— I never saw that one. The Mel Gibson one? yeah. Dude, it's it's the most graphically violent mainstream movie ever made. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Like, there's a part where they're, they're, they have a, a shot, a camera shot, over this guy's shoulder, right? Uh-huh. So his helmet's in the, in the near foreground. And that guy takes a hit to the head, and, like, blood spray covers the camera lens for the next, like, little while. Wow. His brains just cover the camera. <laughs> Man. It's disgusting. Did you like Saving Private Ryan again, though? Yeah, it's, it's a great movie. But it is, like, really, like, violent. That's another thing about getting older is that stuff affects you more and more. The more you come to terms yeah. with the, your own mortality, the more valuable life becomes, the more valuable even a character in a movie's life becomes. You know Agreed. what I mean? That stuff gets to you. Agreed. It's called growing up, my friend. I'm becoming human. <laughs> Isn't it gross? Yeah. All right. So uh, on September 29th, 1939... Uh, there was a, a director of British naval intelligence named Admiral John Godfrey, and he distributed something called the Trout Memo. <laughs> and um, it was written by his assistant, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming. Familiar name? Yeah. Creator of James Bond. That's right. The guy. Yep. And uh, I think most people know that he served at this point. Yeah. But um, if you didn't, that's a nice little factoid for you. So he, he wrote the Trout Memo, and they called it the Trout Memo, memo because they pointed out in the intro... That this that the trout fisherman fishes very patiently, but he changes venue frequently. Yeah, and he changes his bait very frequently too. And so 
they wanted to, they're charged with deception. They wanted to come up with all these different ideas, all this different bait and yeah. venue changes that they could come up with. Yeah, and this was a time, too, we should point out that um, spying uh, spying is always vital. But, man, in World War II, it was going on all over the place yeah. in a huge, huge part of the war. Right. So um, we need to do one on the Enigma machine, by the way, at some point. We do. Because that's one of the unsung heroes in this operation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so with the Trout Memo, Ian Fleming uh, wrote, uh, well, co-authored 51 different operations suggestions, and number 28 uh, was one called a suggestion, parentheses, <laughs> not a very nice one. Uh, the following suggestion is used in a book by Basil Thompson. I'm so pleased that you said Basil. Instead <laughs> of Basil? Yeah. Uh, in fact, that was a 1937 no- uh, novel, The Mil- Milliner's Hat Mystery. And he was actually a, a World War One spy. Oh, really? Yeah. It's all coming together. So he was a, a spy writer that Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, dug. Crazy. So that's where this originates. So uh, here Sorry, was, I'm here, getting excited. Oh, that's right. The following suggestion is used in a book by Basil Thompson, colon, a corpse dressed as an airman with dispatches in his pockets could be dropped on the coast, supposedly from a parachute that had failed, I understand there is no difficulty in obtaining corpses at the Naval Hospital, but, of course, it would have to be a fresh one. So the idea is, let's get a dead person, let's dress him up like a uh, soldier, yep. give him some sensitive documents that leak this invasion. Fraudulent. Fraudulent, mm-hmm. yeah, very important, that uh, leak the invasion of Greece, right. which is not really happening, yeah. and they're going to mount up troops there, and we'll actually go in Sicily, they're going to find this body, they're going to think they've stumbled upon this great happy accident and we're going to fool them. So yeah, that was the that was the whole idea. That was the general basis yeah. of it. And Churchill loved the idea because apparently he liked what he called corkscrew thinkers. Right. Uh because he knew Hitler thought in a straight line. Yes. And by corkscrew thinkers, I think that would be our equivalent of outside the box. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Cor- Churchill was like this is great. I love Churchill. Let's drink some scotch and do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's look like a bulldog while we do too. Yeah. So um, they the the oh, that idea was roughly outlined by Ian Fleming, and then the the Churchill's corkscrew thinkers, the XX committee, led by um, Ewan Montague, and um, Chumley. Yeah, which is his name is not spelled Chumley. No. Uh, how's it spelled? Are you ready for this? Yeah. Charles. C-H-O-L-M-O-N-D-E-L-E-Y. Pronounced Chumley. Yeah, and apparently when he met people, he would say, uh, Lieutenant Charles Chumley, C-H-O-L-M-O-N-D-E-L-E-Y. He would spell it out. Would he really? Yeah. He Are was, you making a, fun of me, or is that for real? No, no, no. He was a very quirky guy, and okay. that's how he, and he described himself as uh, toothpaste as if it had been squeezed from the tube. Like, he self-described. He would go hunting with a revolver, like bird hunting. <laughs> He's a weird guy. Uh, I actually watched a, a quickie BuzzFeed video on this, uh-huh. and uh, they pronounced it Charles Cholomondele. <laughs> did they really? Yeah. Nice. Like, man, well, I'm glad we just, did our research. Exactly. Shout out to BuzzFeed. So, you and Montague, right? Yeah, the other guy. He is noteworthy in a number of ways, too. Apparently, he's just the greatest guy ever. Most interesting man on the planet. Yeah. Um... And he actually wrote the book, the first book on Operation Mincemeat, because yeah. he was one of the people who came up with this and implemented it. The man who was never there? The man who never was. Got right. 
So which became um, a movie too. Yeah, of the same name. Yeah, starring Montgomery Clift, I believe. No, starring Cliff Clavin. Webb. <laughs> Cliff Clavin. Cliff Webb. But not Montgomery Clift. No, those two are virtually interchangeable. Though. Sure. So, um, what you uh, and Montague was already notable because at school he and his brother had created the rules for um, ping pong. No way. Yeah. I did not know that. Among other things. And his brother, equally interesting, equally um, rambunctious, went on to become a spy for the Soviets. Oh, wow. Yes. So he turned? Yes. Against England? Yes. Wow. Against everybody except for the Soviets. Well, uh, Montague was was formerly a a barrister, an attorney, and... um, this is why he actually did not go serve on a ship, um, and the other guy, Chumley, never flew a plane. One was Air Force, one was Navy. <laughs> uh, and apparently, Montague was, uh, as an attorney, was very good at just seeing all the angles. So they said, "You, sir, are perfect for this job." Nice. All right, Chuck. Yes. So we have the rough outline that Ian Fleming came up with. The XX Committee, uh, led by Ewan Montague and Charles Chumley. Yeah, the part of MI5, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, said, we're going to take this particular idea and really run with it. Um, and like you said, they were going to... Or well, the first thing they did was start setting about creating a backstory. Yeah, well, they had three months, so the, the clock is ticking at this point. Yeah, because here's the thing. They set the invasion. Right, in January. Yeah. And they set the invasion for July. Yeah. Now, you needed enough time to um, plant this this corpse, this fake dead courier. Yeah. Um, they had to... Into Nazi hands. Yeah. It, and give the it, with enough time so that the the Nazis could digest it, analyze it, decide it was truthful, and then react the way you wanted them to, which yeah. meant that they had no later than May, or else this plan was out the window. Yeah, you wanted them. The ultimate goal was to have the Nazis put their troops in the wrong place, and that takes time. Right. So they 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 looked around and they decided that the best place to carry out this operation was Spain, and Spain during World War Two was. Allegedly, ostensibly neutral. Sure. But they had a lot of Axis sympathies, a lot of connections to Nazi Germany. And there was a a particular Nazi agent, a spy, working in a port called um, uh, Huevla. (laughs) Huevla, right? Sure. Um, And his name was Adolf Klaus. Yeah. And Adolf Klaus was known to be very methodical. Yeah. Pretty brutal and ruthless. Yeah. Extremely gullible. Yeah, he was a straight line thinker. He like was Hitler. He wasn't one that could think outside the box and think maybe this is an elaborate hoax. That, that guy didn't even own a real corkscrew. Yeah, you know, like he they targeted just this guy, cut the top off of yeah. wine bottles. Yeah, they specifically targeted him, which is amazing. So they wanted this guy who was fairly gullible, but also known as like a very respected Nazi agent in Spain, um, to be the one who came up with this corpse and cadaver. That's right. So before they ever had any corpse or cadaver or anything like that, Montague and um, and Chumley start setting about creating a backstory. And they created this guy named uh, Major um, 
Martin. Yeah, William Martin. William Martin, that's right. And they created Major William Martin, and they created this whole persona. And this wasn't the first time they'd done it. They'd actually, they had um, chops with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So they had created a fake spy network that made Nazi Germany think that they had a whole double double agent network in the UK, and all of them were fictitious, not real people, that you and um, Montague and, and Charles Chumley had created these fake personas. Amazing. And, and had fed the Nazis misinformation through these people that didn't really exist. So they took that, that understanding and that thinking of what it takes to create a fake persona, and they set about creating one for Major William Martin. Yeah, and um, if you there's a great BBC documentary on this, and they interview a lot of the players, um, including a lot of the women who worked at MI5 in the office, and mm-hmm. they were all just so delighted that they all described this as like the most exciting adventure they'd ever had. I'm sure. <clears throat> it was like something out of a spy novel, and they were living it. Right. And so they all had great fun creating these characters, the, these made-up people. Um, they wanted to give him a fiancé uh, because the idea is that they find this body with what not only these documents in a briefcase, the important documents, but to make it believable, he had to have believable what they called pocket litter or wallet litter. Right. Which is if you find any person on the street, ask him to open their wallet, you're going to be able to tell a lot about them. Sure. So just stuff to legitimize it. So they said, let's give him a fiancé. And all the women in the office wanted to be the fiancé. Oh, yeah. So they all submitted photographs. They picked this one lady, Jean Leslie, uh, secretary. Okay, that's the lady uh, on the beach? Yes, picture okay. of her in a bathing suit on the beach. So this was going to be planted on his body. Uh, they all wanted to write the love letters back and forth, but mm-hmm. they picked a woman named Hester Leggert, mm-hmm. the head secretary of MI5, and she wrote, all, even though she was a spinster, she wrote all these like heartfelt love letters. <laughs> the, the first couple of drafts were really dirty, and they were like, you got to tone this down a little They're bit. They're like, is that what you think happens in a relationship? <laughs> She's like, uh, no, not me, the fictitious lady. <laughs> so everyone's really excited in the office. Um, Chumley is wearing the, what would eventually be the uniform <laughs> of Martin every day to give it that worn-in look. Awesome. Uh, Montague actually ended up having an affair with the secretary who gave him the photo as the fiancé. Okay. They had a real-life affair as Bill and Pam. Pam is the made-up fiancé. It, oh, got, it wow. got a little weird. That is a little weird. Like, they wrote each other love letters, had a real-life affair calling each other Bill and Pam. Huh. So there was some, like, strange role-playing going on. I'm sure. He was married at the time. His family had been shipped to America, so he was not doing the right thing there. Jeez. He was... He was a louse in that department. Well, you know, also, um, Roald Dahl, the guy who wrote James and the Giant Peach and Charlie yeah, yeah. and Chocolate Factory, he was a spy for the British. He was in the British military, and his whole job was to basically bed um, the wives of American officials here in Washington. Really? Yeah. Did he do so? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, he made his way through Washington <laughs> society. Wow. Apparently with great zeal. All right, so they're cooking up this backstory. Uh, they get other great things for the wallet litter, like uh, theater ticket stubs and a, an overdraft letter from his bank, and just these things that make it seem like super realistic. Right. And what else? The, they, he, they, I think they gave him a St. Christopher medal, maybe? They wanted to strongly imply that he was Roman Catholic, and that'll come up uh, very, it'll become very important in a minute, right? Yes, very much. So they've got this backstory, and apparently, like, this, they were working feverishly on this stuff. 
having the weirdo affair, yeah. uh, wearing the uniform, all that stuff, before they'd even gotten final approval, just because they didn't want to stop work and then have yeah. to pick it up feverishly. They wanted this to, to keep going. So they finally got final approval from Admiral Godfrey um, to carry out this thing for real. And when they got final approval, they said, okay, we need a body. Yeah. And they figured, no problem. They were looking at first, they, they needed somebody who um, who had relatives that didn't care what happened to the body after death yeah. and could keep their mouths shut. Yeah. Um, they needed a body that was of military age. Sure. Didn't have any signs of visible trauma. Right. Um, so they or couldn't have been run over by a bus. Right. Or, or died of scurvy. Sure. Um and that that preferably they would have died of pneumonia. And the reason that they wanted him to die of pneumonia is because they they were going to make it look like this guy had been in a plane crash, um, but had survived the plane crash, but had drowned at sea. Right. And if he had pneumonia, then his fluids would be filled with lungs, so that when the Spanish conducted an autopsy lungs on him, would be filled with fluid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so that when the Spanish conducted their autopsy, they'd be like, "This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I've yeah. never seen." fluid filled with lungs yeah but that's how much fluid there is (laughs) yep the problem is is they didn't get their hands on a guy with pneumonia and they didn't even know exactly where to get a person at first it wasn't until they turned the guy who ran the morgue at saint pancras uh hospital which is the worst hospital name of all time (laughs) um they turned him and got him to assist them that they finally got their hands on a body yeah his name was sir uh, Sir Bentley Purchase, which is a great name, great British name, and uh, it was a—he was a coroner of the largest mortuary at St Pancras. <laughs> Terrible, and he had apparently a wicked sense of humor. It was pretty complicated to give directions to his office, so when he gave Montague the directions, he said, "Or you could just get run over by a bus." <laughs> nice, man. The British during wartime were—they're having a blast. Their sense of humor was wonderful. So they got uh, Bentley Purchase, and he said, "I've got a dude." Um, his name is uh, Glendor Michael. Yeah, that is not how that's spelled either. No, it is G-L-Y-N-D-W-R. Super Welsh. Yeah, he was a Welshman born in 1909. Uh, he was the son of a coal miner. His mm-hmm. father killed himself by stabbing himself in the throat. I hadn't read that. Can that you imagine a worse old man. And it didn't say, like, slit your throat. It said he stabbed himself in the throat. Right. Which is weird. And sad. Jeez. So his dad died when he was a teenager. Mother died when he was 30. Uh, alcoholic, had a rough go because of the depression, and was basically basically killed himself by ingesting rat poison. So that is not necessarily resolved. What, whether it was suicide? Yeah. So they, 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 the uh, Bentley Purchase wrote down that he, um, he killed himself. Yeah, it was ruled a suicide. Okay. But the way that he ate the rat poison, it was on a crust of bread. So he was hungry? They wondered. Ugh. So he, he may have been so destitute that he ate a crust of bread that he found in an abandoned warehouse, and it was smeared with rat poison, and that's what he died of. Wow. But they found him in this cold January night in 1943 um, in this abandoned warehouse in London, and um, he had just eaten some rat poison, but he survived for two more days. Yeah. And so Bentley purchased got his hands on him and said, I think I found your guy, dudes. Yeah, and they did. Um, there were some issues, uh, one of which is they needed a, a photo of the guy for an ID. He didn't have any photos. Uh, oh, God. And every time they took a picture of the dead guy's face, 
they were like, he looks like a dead guy. Yeah, really. So they scoured. Yeah, I can see your fingers holding his <laughs> yeah. eyes up. So they scoured London looking for a lookalike and eventually found a guy, uh, a fellow intelligence officer who looked just like him. Awesome. So they used his face. Awesome. For the ID. It's all coming together. Yes, it is. I'm sure they were like, wow, Providence is really smiling on this. Yeah, and if you're feeling bad for Glendor, just hang tight. Yeah, I still think you can feel bad for Glendor. Well, sure. Talk about a rough life, yeah. man. Yeah. Jeez. Do you remember that one Saturday Night Live where Robert Duvall was like super special guest? He wasn't even hosting or mentioned. No. He just showed up on this game show called Who's More Grizzled? No way. And he talks about, like, it was him and uh, Garth Brooks. Boy, how did I miss that? And um, he talks about how one, one cold winter, his, his wife died, and he had to keep her out in the barn until the ground thawed so he could bury her out back. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was just weird like that. It wasn't wow. even really funny. It was more just like, wow, that really is hard. But the whole game show was who's more grizzled. Yeah, sure. And he won. Of course. Because it's Robert Duvall. Yeah, he's more grizzled than Garth Brooks. Or Chris Yeah, Gaines. even, even, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor, poor Garth Brooks. Not poor Garth Brooks. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the Chris Gaines thing. Yeah, he chose to do it. He's a wealthy man. Yeah. I Don't feel, feel too bad for him. I, feel bad. I think that was evidence that he was surrounded by yes men at the time. Yeah, maybe. That was a weird thing, though. Yeah. You know? He faked a soul patch. <laughs> oh, that wasn't even real? No. I mean, even if it was real, it was part of his character. It's yeah, like, sure. I uh, thought you meant it was Sharpie. Uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> the hair was definitely colored with Sharpie. All right. So where uh, where are we here? We've got a body. We finally got the photograph of him. Yeah, which is, that's amazing. I didn't know that part. Yeah. And um, it, there's another thing. We found this awesome uh, a military analysis of it. Yeah, Some, that was kind of cool. Somebody wrote a military analysis of this. I don't remember who, so I can't give them a shout-out, but we'll put it on our podcast page. But they point out that one of the reasons this was so successful, this operation, was, one, these guys at XS commit, XX Committee just had free run to break the law, um, bend morality, yeah. do all sorts of stuff. Um, they just were able to go do their thing. But the other thing was is that they really kept this a lid on this stuff. And it was all disseminated on a need to know basis. So when they had this guy, they had him they had they got uh, Glendur, kept him on ice for three months as they finished his backstory. They're running up against like go time. And then I think in um February or March or April maybe. I'm not sure of the date, do you know? That what happened? When they finally um, carried out Operation Mincemeat. Let's just say spring, because I know that they <laughs> kept him uh, on ice for a few months. Yeah, and they so they're up to the point where it, the, the um, decomp is about to give away that this guy didn't just recently die. Yeah, and that was a big fear that the Spanish uh, coroners would be able to tell, too. Okay. Which will come up in a minute. Okay, and um, they're also getting to the point where they're reaching the end of the amount of time that they need to give the Nazis to absorb this misinformation. Sure. So they finally, they, they get the guy's persona in place, they have the body, and now it's time to actually carry out the operation. And like I was saying, they kept a lid on all this, so it was a need-to-know basis. So they got their hands on a sub-commander who could keep his mouth shut, and they gave him a metal cylinder um, with the corpse of Glendur Michael, now... Uh, Major William Martin. Yeah, and when you say sub-commander, you mean submarine. Yes. Not a commander below Regular commander. commander. Yeah. <laughs> the They're submarine important. commander. Yeah. They gave him the cylinder, and they said, 
we're going to tell you what's in here. Do not tell anybody else. So apparently the people uh, staffing the sub um, thought this was some sort of weather buoy. Yeah, it was marked optical instruments. Um but you're right. He was the only one on board, supposedly, that knew there was a, a body inside. Yep. And they put a life jacket on him, stuffed him in the cylinder, put him on the sub, and took him over to Spain under a, uh, on a submarine. Well, let's back up for one second, too. Okay. Um, right. Because we, we forgot to cover the, the main letter in oh, the briefcase. Yeah. Really important. This was the, the all of Operation Mincemeat. It did not hinge on theater ticket stubs. Or bank overdraft letters. That's merely pocket litter. It hinged on a a letter uh, hinting strongly that the invasion was going to come up through Greece, uh, Sardinia. Right. And that was the other thing, too. It wasn't like official document, invasion is going to come through Greece. Yes. It was a letter from one general or admiral to another high-ranking guy. I think General Nye... Uh, they they composed a bunch of different letters themselves, and finally they said, "Why don't you write it? Yeah, in your own words, in your own language, in your own handwriting, everything." Yeah. So it really was written by this this um, high ranking U.S. military official or British military yeah. official, um, who who cre- who wrote this fake letter. And he made a joke about sardines, a terrible joke, which was the little hint right. that uh, was just clever enough to work. Right, and so in it, it basically says. Um, we're, we're coming up with the, you know, we're going to strike through Greece. That's where the invasion of Europe's going to be. Yeah. Um, but we're also going to tell everybody that Sicily is the cover, right? Right. And this was a stroke of genius. Oh, yeah. Because in this, this false letter, not only does it show that they're coming through Greece, which they weren't, yeah. but it says that Sicily's the cover, which would make the Nazis think that uh-huh. if anyone ever did actually yeah. leak the real invasion plan of Sicily, yeah. the Nazis would think that that was misinformation. Dude, it was so ingenious. That's crazy ingenious. And I think about here now, Chuck, we get to the point where we should talk about the Enigma machine and the role it played, right? Yeah. Well, basically, we all know that the Enigma machine was the code-breaking machine invented uh, in the U.K. to decipher... uh, Well, the Enigma machine wrote the code, I think. Oh, it wrote the code? Yeah. I thought it deciphered code that was gotten. They deciphered it at Bletchley Park, but I think the Enigma machine was the actual code writing, the encrypting machine. Oh, okay. I could be wrong, but okay. Well, so we definitely need to do a podcast on that. <laughs> right. Because we're mixed up already. To get it straight. But at any rate, the long and short of it is in Beckley Park. Was it Beckley Park? I always say Bletchley. Oh, is it? was there an L in there? I, I draw the whole ugly word out. Uh, they basically had, they could, it was like reading the Nazis' email, essentially, like on a daily basis. On an hourly basis. Hourly basis. They knew exactly what was going on, so they would know if they were buying this whole thing as it happened in real time. But even before that, they were able to craft this this misinformation based on the Nazis' assumptions. So everybody wants to hear that their assumptions, that their beliefs are correct. Yeah. People are more apt to buy that, things that confirm their suspicions or their beliefs already, right? Yeah, Hitler was worried about Sicily. He, he was. So he, he already thought that Greece was going to be where we invaded. Yeah. And then secondly, he was he we knew that he had heard rumors that Mussolini was going to be toppled soon, so he was reticent to commit troops to Italy, Sicily, yeah. right? So this this revelation that came in the form of this letter, this fa- false letter, yeah. completely 
supported everything that Hitler and the Third Reich believed as far as this European invasion was going to go. And we were able to do that thanks to the Smarties at, at Bletchley Park, right? Yeah, and uh, this letter, too, it's, um, here's another little tidbit. They put a single eyelash in the fold of the letter uh, so they would know when they eventually got this letter back, if uh, there was no eyelash, they mm-hmm. would know that the Nazis had, in fact, opened it. Right. Um, and because the idea was they would open it, reseal it, and act like we never saw it. Right. But if there wasn't that eyelash, then they'd know. Nice. So rudimentary, but it worked. Oh, yeah. So, um, should we take another break? Let's take a break. Okay, so Chuck, we are at sea aboard a submarine. That's right. It's uh, chilly down here and dark. Off, it is. And you're not supposed to be smoking cigars. No, you're not. Despite Gene Hackman doing it in Crimson Tide. Yeah, what a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're off the coast of Spain. We're off the coast of uh, Huevla. Not yeah. an easy word to, to say, but it's a port in Spain. And again, this is where Nazi agent Adolf Klaus. Yeah, they kind of want to float the body right up to this guy's backyard, basically. So they did. He was released from this canister. I, I read somewhere else that um, the canister itself was fired on with submachine guns on a sub. So you could just call them machine guns there. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it was sunk, and the body drifted off toward oh, Revla. Oh, I thought they just dumped the body. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Because yeah. I, f- I found a book um, on Google Books. It was like from 2007, and it was a, a history book. Gotcha. And it made it sound like the sub, um, the people working on the sub all knew what was going on. Huh. But that's in stark, stark contrast to everything else we've seen. Yeah. So they may or may not have sunk the weather buoy. Who knows? But either way, uh, Major Martin was released into the current that took him right to Huevla, and he went, uh, I think he was found by a fisherman that same day. Uh, yeah, and at this point, the, um, the, the Brits started sending telegrams about a, a, a very important missing person. Frantic. Yeah, like they wanted these to get intercepted, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and that worked as well. This is all really going exactly as they had planned. So they sent the British Council in Spain, in Huevla, um, or in Spain to Huevla, and said, uh, you need, this is really important. You need to get your hands on the briefcase. Find out what happened to this guy and get your hands on his briefcase. Yeah, and Klaus is going, briefcase? Right. <laughs> his monocle popped out. <laughs> and um, the British Council in Spain didn't even know what was going on. Yeah. They thought, like, this, like they, were, they saw everything from the same aspect of reality that the Nazis yeah, saw. Yeah, need to know basis. Exactly. So the British Council are trying to get this briefcase kind of frantically. Um, and the Spaniards were like, uh, you know what? We are just going to keep this on lockdown for now as we investigate the whole thing. But we got it covered. Remember, we're neutral, so your briefcase is safe. And the British consulate said, well, okay, one thing. This is very important. Uh, this guy was Roman Catholic. You can check out the medal in his pocket. Yeah. Um, so please don't dissect him. It's against Roman Catholic beliefs and yeah. traditions to um, dissect or autopsy a body. I hadn't heard before, but yeah. apparently in the 40s that was the case. And Spain was way down with that. Super Roman Catholic. Yeah. And they said, oh, yes, of course, we won't do that. So apparently that's how they got around the fact that uh, Glyndor hadn't died of pneumonia. Yeah, and the other way they got around it was they had a plant uh, in the office 
who talked to the coroners and was like, guys, it's hot, and this body is going to start rotting real soon, uh-huh. so how thorough do you really want to make this? Right. And they said, you're right. Let's go have some uh, some wine. Some, uh, what do they call it over there? Wine. No, what's the uh, fruity? Sangria. Yeah, let's go have some sangria yeah. and knock off early. And that's exactly what happened, <laughs> thanks to the plant. <laughs> right. Uh, so this is going on. The, the, there was a small wrinkle at this point. The briefcase went to Madrid. Spain wasn't going to hand it over to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Brits were trying to get it in the hands of the Nazis, and they were actually having trouble getting it into the hands of the Nazis uh, until a guy named Carlo uh, Kulental. He was Hitler's most trusted guy in Spain. Uh, he got wind of it and kind of took over for Klaus. was like, I'm going to get this briefcase. And he did. Nine days later, after the body washed ashore, uh, the letter ended up in the hands of the German. Uh, the German, uh, you know, worked his way up the chain. Yeah, to Hitler himself. Yeah, it went to Goebbels first, and Goebbels, even in his diary, they found later, had suspicions about it. Oh, yeah? Because he was a corkscrew thinker. Huh. And he was like, wait a minute. This, this is pretty convenient. Yeah, this is really fishy here. But he, apparently he never said anything to Hitler. <laughs> he got distracted. He wrote about it in his diary, by but his kittens. The, the the documentary said that his thinking was, "Well, if Hitler believes it, then that's good enough for me." Huh? That seems like a bad idea. Yeah, and um, homeboy uh, Carlo Kulental, mm-hmm. there was always a lot of speculation on why he just ran with it and didn't ask more questions because right. that was his job. Yeah, and it turns out his grandmother was Jewish, and he was very paranoid about this being found out. So he thought, this is it. I've come upon the greatest find of the war, and it's all mine. So oh, yeah. uh, no one will ask any questions about me after this. Huh. Wow, that yeah. worked out really, really well. Yeah, very convenient. And thanks to the Enigma machine, they knew, um, the Brits knew pretty quickly that this was working. And I guess Montague and um, Chumley were, uh, sent An- Admiral Godfrey a, a transmission that said, uh, Operation Mincemeat swallowed rod, line, and sinker. Yeah, that when when the um, it's so cool seeing these old uh, like uh, apparently you're not supposed to say elderly anymore. By the way, we got an email. I knew that. Or seniors, you're yeah. supposed to call them older adults. Seniors, I, I, I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, older adults. So they're interviewing these older adults, these British ladies that are in their 80s now, and they were just all so still excited. They said when they. Because, you know, with the Enigma machine, they were basically reading their emails. Right. And they were like, they knew. They were buying it. They're buying it. Yeah. And everyone was just, like, flipped when that came through the office. It was just, like, party time, basically. So the the Operation Mincemeat really, really worked really well. So much so that, apparently, Hitler moved a panzer division, which totals about 90,000 troops. Yeah. From Sicily to Greece. Yeah. And and all the artillery and armaments and everything, just, not just soldiers. So long, obviously. Sicily. We're going to Greece. Yeah. And then up came the Allies through Sicily. 160,000 Allied troops stormed Sicily, and only 7,000 lives were lost, which is still a lot of people who died. But apparently, as far as military historians are concerned, and I think the military at the time, that was a way fewer lives lost than they expected Yeah, um, had they had Hitler not swallowed Operation Mincemeat. Yeah, they expected um, 10,000 casualties in the first three days and 300 boats sunk in the first two days, and it ended up being 1,400 
in that first week soldiers in uh, about a dozen ships in that first week. So that's not bad. Yeah, and not only that, but it had another effect. Big one. The Soviets. Yeah, so this is not something that they teach in American history classes in U.S. high schools that no, much. No, the um, The Operation Husky... Uh, well, it was it was that penetration of Europe's underbelly, right? Yeah. And suddenly Hitler said, um, I'm about to storm Russia, but I really need these troops down here in Europe because I got big problems. Yeah. And that allowed basically Russia to topple the Nazi regime. And Mussolini get toppled by the Brits. Yeah. It, it completely changed the face of the war. Yeah. This one idea cooked up by Ian Fleming in part. Isn't that crazy? It's pretty awesome. You got other stuff? Um, there's a book called Operation Mincemeat by a guy named Brett McIntyre. All right. That came out in 2010. That's a very good, well-cited book um, that we inadvertently cited here or there. Um, and then there's The Man Who Never Was, which was written by Ewan Montague, which is not just about Operation Mincemeat, but also about basically how to carry out deception plans. All right. Remember earlier when I said don't feel too bad for, uh, for Glendor Michael? Yes. Even you said, well, the dude died uh, possibly of suicide because he was penniless and going nowhere. Yeah. So or I feel hungry. bad about that. But uh, 50 years after he was buried in 1997, uh, the British government added, they basically buried him with military honors. The Spanish did. Oh, the, yeah. He was buried in Spain. Yeah. But the British, it came from the Brits, I think, to do so. His headstone um, came from the Brits, but the Spanish buried him with like the a twenty-one gun salute and everything. Yeah, it says Glendor Michael served as Major William Martin R.M. Uh, Royal Marine. Pretty cool. Yeah. So this alcoholic drifter who never served in the military, never served in the military, was buried with full military honors. Yeah, and completely <laughs> changed the face of the war thanks to. Being a body, yeah, that fit the that fit the bill. And if you like ghoulish photos, there's a very famous photo of him being propped up in his life jacket and uniform as they were basically loading him into the cylinder. Um, that you can see by searching, I'm sure, Major Charles Martin. That's right, Charles Martin. No, William Martin. William Martin. Something like that. I still want to know what's going on with that uh, weird role playing there with the uh, dude. That's odd. Bill and Pam. Yeah, yeah, because they interviewed the lady who. And she was just like, oh, it was all very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's a great British lady accent. Old, older person? Yeah. Yeah, older o- adult. Older adult. Yeah. Yeah. Oldie. Uh, if you want to get, or no, if you want to know more about Operation Mincemeat, just type that word into your favorite search engine. Or go check out the uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class episode. And so I said, Stuff You Missed in History Class, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this bread crust. We had that discussion about the crust uh, and the end pieces. Oh, I remember. So this is from a dad. Uh, Dear Chuck and Josh, your discussion of the end slice of bread in the body language episode brought a ridiculous grin to my face as I walked around my neighborhood. Uh, don't worry, though. My neighbors have thought me to be eccentric for years now. Look at that guy. He's smiling. What a weirdo. He must be a pinko. <laughs> Uh, when our daughters were still tiny, my wife and I realized we were doomed to 18-ish years of eating bread crust pieces ourselves if we didn't figure something out and quickly. Um, our solution? We started calling those pieces the lucky piece. And boy, did we rook our innocent, trusting toddlers. <laughs> Turns out your supposition is correct, Chuck. At least 
uh, for children under 11 years old. Uh, even if they're honor students, as mine were, they will fight you for the right to eat that savory, oh-so-desirable piece of luck. Nice idea. Younger adults. Rock on, guys, and please keep my goofy grins coming. That is from Ted C-O-I-N-E with a little, uh, what do you call that? Quine. 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 Is that a accent a goo? No, I don't know. I didn't take French. Uh, legume. What do you call that? A legume? <laughs> accent legume? Yeah. <laughs> So thanks, Ted. Uh, I'll just call you Coin. Yeah. It's thanks, Ted. What? Quine? Quine? I don't know. Let's say Coin. All right. Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot. Ted. Ted contacted us on Twitter. So oh, he, he did. He wanted to send us this email. So there you go, Ted. Wow. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can try all the ways like Ted did. You can contact us on Twitter at SYSK Podcast. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can join us on facebook.com slash stuff you should know. And you can hang out at our luxurious home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.